Hello, this is Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad. I hope you're having a great day, and welcome to the Tall, Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Just before you get into this episode of the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, did you know you can now support the podcast on Patreon? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash tfadpod, where your monthly donations will help support what I do in producing enjoyable and thought-provoking material. Without your support, I'm just a guy and a microphone, but with your support, I'm a person who can share thoughtful perspectives on controversial topics. Don't forget to share the podcast on your social media to help spread the word. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Ad Podcast. My name is Damien, and it is a pleasure to have on the on the other side of the world, Glenn Branch from the National Centre for Science Education. Glenn, good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Oh, I'm sorry. We, we we must be in different time zones. Yes, indeed. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, as you can tell from my weird accent, yes, I come from uh, the other side of the world, where um, where I'm thinking I'm about 14 hours ahead of you. So, hooray for me! Hooray for me. Anyway, Glenn, uh, could I get you to tell tell everyone a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I'm the deputy director of the National Center for Science Education. In the wonderful world of nonprofits, um, being a deputy director is like being a utility infielder in baseball. <laughs> I don't know what the Australian equivalent is. Uh, j- jack of all trades sounds like the, oh, uh, the best way of putting it. That works too. Uh, so I do a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. At the moment, I've been doing um, working on survey research with... Um, national representative samples of u.s public school science teachers mm-hmm. which is a lot of work but it yep. gives us some very interesting data and points the way to ways that we can work to improve science education in the united states mm-hmm. um but i uh, have been at ncse for a long time since 1999 so i had a ringside seat for kitzmiller versus dover which Good. is and- the the main point of the topic today. I will get into that uh, uh, shortly, but tell me more about what the NCSC actually does, what your mission is, what you're trying to achieve, and what what you would like to see happen. Sure. So NCSC started uh, as a national group that would coordinate the activities of state-level grassroots groups that were working in the late 70s and early 80s to resist the encroachment of creationists on Mm -hmm. public school science education. Um, We still do that. Mm -hmm. We, We have added to our portfolio since then also climate change because climate change, like evolution, is a scientifically uncontroversial but socially controversial topic that gets Indeed. taught in schools. Mm-hmm. And so there's resistance to teaching it, which takes the form of grassroots organiza- uh, grassroots attempts to ban or restrict its teaching or yeah. even legislative attempts. So we do a lot of that. We've also tried to uh, broaden somewhat in previous years. One metaphor we sometimes use is in the past, all we were doing was handing out fire extinguishers. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's... Uh, to, to put out the flames of mm-hmm. immediate pressing problems, yep, yep. Uh, we want to do things to um, clear the brush so the fires aren't um, Catching as up. problematic in the future. Yeah. In the future. Yeah. So one of my colleagues, for example, is preparing with the aid of some master teachers and content experts, model lesson plans on evolution, climate change, and the nature of science. Mm-hmm. And another, another project is the survey research, which... Um, you know, will inform our efforts and the efforts of others to improve uh, science education going forward in the future. No, so, well, Glenn, I believe science education is one of those, uh, I think it's one of those things that has made uh, Western civilization what, what it has become. You know, the fact that we, um, we have this method of inquiry that is in, independent of personal opinion. So if we go back, you know, 1,500, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years, you know, there was very little, you know, like if someone got sick for some, re- some reason, it was, you know, for example, let's say epilepsy. You know, epilepsy was thought to be demonic and its treatments were, you know, were, fo- were tailored on countering the demonic. But now we know what things like epilepsy and, you know, all that are. And we and we got there by science. We didn't get there by by praying or by you know reading a particular religion scripture, or by waiting for a scroll to come down on a cloud. You know, we got there by, you know, actually trying to work out, regard independent of what of independent of what our opinion on the matter actually is. You know, we we developed this method of working out what what you know, what we're actually looking at, and then finding a way to 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 make it better. So. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad. I'm very happy to have organisations like yourself that you know try increase uh, science literacy, uh, particularly for children in in classrooms, because yeah, that's what we need. We need more. We need more knowledge. We need more education. We need. Well, it's not. It's not just. Um, how can I say? It's not just having the science, but it's also being able to uh, prosecute the case. As to why we need more science, as to what science actually is, and how it can improve lives, and what it actually means, and and all that kind of stuff. So, Glenn, thank you for what your organisation has done there for the last 30, 40 something years. Thank you. Um, yeah, and this is uh, in a way like just listening listening to you say what 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 the NCSC actually does. Um, it sounds a bit like a, you're a, a counter to organisations like Arts in Genesis or Creation Ministries International or Institute for Creation Research. That's true to a large extent, although most of the organisations you've named have kind of given up on the attempt of forcing their ideas into public school um, science education in the United States. This is mainly because they received a major set major setbacks plural in the mm-hmm. 1980s in two uh, federal court cases. One yes. was 19 one was 1982, McLean versus Arkansas. That's right. And yeah. and then there was a Supreme Court case, uh, Edwards v. Aguilard in 1987. Yep. Yeah. So um, certainly they can. There's still a thorn in the side of science educators mm-hmm. because even if the organizations themselves are not trying to wedge their ideas into the curriculum. They put those ideas out there and misguided 
teachers or administrators or members mm -hmm. of the community often take them and try to wedge them into the curriculum and that Good. causes problems. Indeed, because I understand that Arts in Genesis actually have uh, online lesson planners. Like they've actually they've actually gone to the effort to make you know like online well well like I was just I was just say online lesson but um, lesson plans available online particularly for homeschooling, and this is what I notice is that creationism tends to be fairly big in the homeschool uh, the homeschool environment. That's right. Uh, so something like four percent of U.S. school age students are homeschooled. Mm -hmm. Something something like ten percent are privately schooled. And not all of those homeschooling and private schooling environments are particularly interested in creationism. In fact, your regular Catholic parochial school or Lutheran or Anglican parochial school yeah. is probably teaching evolution about as well or maybe even a little better than your average public school. Yeah, yeah that's... But, but a lot of them are fundamentalist Christian schools that use materials that are creationist in one way or another. Yeah, no, fair enough. Because I do, like I said, like I do know that AIG and its sister organisation, uh, Creation Ministries International, um, who are more the AIG of Australia. Um, yeah, they they certainly have gone to a lot of effort to, I suppose, get around any legal bans on teaching creationism. Um, and yeah, the, the the sneaky little suckers. How 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 dare they? Um, anyway, Glenn, uh, let's get on to uh, the, the topic at hand, Kitzmiller versus Dover. Now, not everyone will have read uh, Nick Matsky's article, and not everyone is is familiar with it. And I, I have to tell you that I only found out... Now, now when did when did K KVD happen? It was like 2005, 2006? The court case itself was 2005, with the uh, verdict coming in on December 20th, 2005, yep. so we like to say it was a Merry Kitsmas. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I love that one. However, I now I, I was a fundamentalist charismatic um, for, you know, for a good 15-something years, and I didn't come out till about 2000, 2015, 2016, and I had never heard of KVD until... I started looking into the atheist side of the atheist side of the, of, of the of the equation, and then I, then I realized, hold on, you know, um, creationism really isn't. Once you look at it, once you look at it agnostically, creationism isn't science. But why why do you think? Uh, okay, let's. I'll ask this question later. But anyway, um, so tell me more about KVD from your perspective. Sure. So we found out about it in. Oh, middle 2004, because there were a lot of rumblings in the Dover Area School Board. In Massachusetts, uh, was it? In, uh, no, in Pennsylvania. Oh, there, sorry, sorry, yep. There are a number of cities named Dover, and this is not the largest one. Um, <laughs> yep. It is a bedroom community in southern Pennsylvania. The nearest big city is, is called York. Yep. Uh, but it, this is a small town, a few thousand people. Um, and we later found out that actually there had been problems percolating for a few years, going back, interestingly, to a high school student's mural. Uh, this yeah. high school student had done a mural, uh, very much a labor of love, although I think it was tied in with the biology class, depicting the familiar um, March of Hominids. Ah, yes, yes. The, 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 the four panel, the four picture panel, uh, if I think which one it is, like the, the silhouette of a. Uh, walking primates yeah. uh, becoming men. 
Yeah, his his was a little more elaborate. Uh, I, I think you. it was a, I think it was about twenty feet and at least eight hominids. But okay, and um, this had been on display in a hall, in the um, high school, mm-hmm. and a, apparently a school board member took offense to it. The janitor was directed to burn it. Wow. And uh, the, uh, the school board member um, was quoted as saying, I paraphrase from memory, um, you know, I stood there and gleefully watched it burn. So, okay. And, were, what, and what, what reason was given at the time for wanting this uh, particular mural burnt? Well, it, it was not highly publicized, but clearly the um, board member in question didn't accept evolution, thought it was offensive, and didn't want it being so prominently displayed in the high school. Okay, so basically his personal opinion was the the be-all and end-all. Yes. Okay. So so in 2004, um, the teachers at Dover Senior High School wanted new biology textbooks because the old ones were too old to teach from effectively. Mm -hmm. And... uh, you know, this is a substantial purchase, and so there's a lot of bureaucracy to go through. They evaluated all the textbooks on offer. They decided that they wanted um, something called Miller and Levine Biology, which yep, yep, yep. is one of the most popular uh, high school t- biology textbooks in the U.S. And they went to the board and said, okay, this is what we want to buy. The board wanted them to buy of pandas and people. This is a textbook that was developed by a small Texas nonprofit ministry called the Foundation for Thought and Ethics. It was intended not as a basal textbook for a class, but rather a supplemental textbook. The idea would be you'd have a regular textbook and then this would correct all the lies in the the regular textbook. And the teachers took that seriously. They went and looked at the uh, a copy of Pandas and People and evaluated and said, no, this mm-hmm. is not suitable for our needs. What we want is the Miller and Levine textbook. Mm-hmm. And this kind of drags on meeting after meeting. And the at least two members of the board um, are holding up the funding for the biology textbooks until they get some kind of concessions about the um, of Pandas and People, the creationist textbook. Finally, Uh, The board votes in October 2004 to adopt a policy requiring students to, quote, be made aware of gaps slash problems in Darwin's theory and of other theories of evolution, including but not limited to intelligent design. Hmm. At this point, concerned local parents started to seek legal advice. Yep. Um, And... um, in in the event, 11 parents um, would f- file suit, uh, starting led by Tammy Kitzmiller. And um, this is actually not public record, but I try to get it out there whenever I can. Of course. I talked to uh, the lawyers at the time, and uh, there were really two reasons to have Tammy Kitzmiller be the um, lead plaintiff. And which are? Which are first, she had a daughter who would be taking biology that year, mm-hmm. and uh, because the other parents had children in the school system, but it would be harder for them to argue, my child is an imminent danger. Yep. 
Um, so, and the other thing is they liked her surname. Uh, <laughs> They, they thought they thought Kitzmiller. That's a good, solid Pennsylvania Dutch name. Let's let's go with that. Sure, no, that's a that's a good point. And plus, yeah, now she's gone. Down, she's gone down in infamy. Well, with a, or fame. It <laughs> depends, depends which size you're on. Okay, so then, what happened from there? Okay, so the board has adopted this policy. Uh, but how are they going to act on the policy? Students are supposed to be made aware of these gaps slash problems and be told about intelligent design, but how does how do you implement that? What the board then did is wrote a four-paragraph um, statement mm-hmm. which and asked the teachers to read, to read, to, to read it to the students aloud. And I'll paraphrase from memory. Um, the state is making us teach you evolution um, but, you know, it's just a theory, and here's this other cool theory called intelligent design, mm-hmm. and you should go look at a copy of Pandas and People to get some idea about what that is, and did I mention that the state is making this yeah. evolution? Yeah. Um, if I can uh, pause you there for a second, so why would the school, why would a small, a school board of a small town in basically the middle of nowhere, you know, like not, not near, you know, not near any big cities, you know, it's a of a few thousand people. Why are they up in arms about the teaching of evolution? Like what's got into them that, you know, why, why do you feel they will prosecute, prosecute in the case for oh. intelligent design and or against evolution? So that's an excellent question, and there's several different answers. Sure. One is a kind of structural question. Uh, through most of the developed world, curriculum and instruction is either determined at the national level Mm-hmm. Uh, say in France, I'm told the Minister of Education knows what page of what book every student has open in every classroom at any well, given time. <laughs> wow, probably overstatement. Yep. Or, or in can't or or curriculum and instruction is determined at a, the state or provincial level, as in mm-hmm. Canada, for example. Yep. In the United States, it's determined at the local school district level. Oh, Would I you care to? So. Yep. Would you care to hazard a guess how many local school districts there are in the U.S.? Uh, quite a few thousand. Uh, good enough, thirteen thousand five hundred ish. Wow, that is that is interesting because yeah, in where where we live, um, yes, uh, education is one of those powers determined by the uh, by the state government, but with some uh, financial incentive from the federal government. Right. So with this extreme decentralization of U.S. education, mm-hmm. um, that means there's always opportunities for creationists to try to make mischief somewhere. Yep. And it also means one fairly reliable route for a political career goes through a local school, school board. Yep. Because, because from, the, from the school board, you can then... Well, you you could um, you run for the state legislature, for example, oh, okay, or, the, yeah. or, or the state board of education, or mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so that's part of the reason. Uh, part of the reason is that two of the board members, uh, William Buckingham and Alan Bonsell, Bonsell. Yep. had uh, really decided that they were they wanted to do this, mm-hmm. and you know, in a small town. Uh, strong-willed people on a committee or a commission can often just sort of get their own way by insisting. And my understanding was, I think Alan Bonsell was, was a business owner as well in the area. Uh, that's correct. 
Yeah. So obviously, so he's he's got some sway in some form in some in some capacity. Yeah. So so small town uh, business owner, you know, is obviously fairly obviously somewhat known already. Um, and yeah, so he's going he's going so he's going to try, try try throw some weight around. And the third reason, yes, is that um, a far right advocacy group called the Thomas More Law Center had been shopping around trying to find a district that would be willing to pass a policy that could then be the subject of a test case. Oh, okay, that's a. And um, it well, turns out that Thomas More Law Center had been in touch with uh, Buckingham and Bonsell both. both, I believe. Tell me more um, about actually, just for tell me more about the Thomas More Law Center. So this is a, um, a far right religious right advocacy organization, mm-hmm. Catholic in tenor, as you can tell from the yep. Saint Thomas More as mm-hmm. namesake, and uh, located in Michigan. Um, I want to say Detroit, but that might not be right. And was run by um, Richard Thompson, who previously had attained some notoriety as the relentless prosecutor of the right to die activist Jack Kevorkian. That's just, uh, the trying to think where I heard that name before. Yes. So um, he was doing this in his capacity as a prosecutor for Oakland County, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was no longer doing that by the time he was running the Thomas More Law Center in 2004. Yeah, yeah. No, so so in short, um, you've got two, uh, let's say let's say creationists in Bonsell and Buckingham. Um, you've got a small town. You've got an opportunity for change in the curriculum. Um, you've got a law centre who are itching, basically itching for a fight. Correct. If that's if that's a bit the best way to put it. So you've got this uh, four paragraph statement that the teachers are made to read out. Have the textbooks been purchased at this stage? The school district did not purchase the text, the Appendix and People's textbooks. Okay. How, however, by however. a remark, by a remarkable coincidence, either fifty or sixty copies, reports varied, uh, were donated by an anonymous, right-minded citizens to the school library. <gasps> what a what a shock! Wow. How, so, how, however, however, could that happen? I don't. Mm, beats me, doesn't it, Glenn? Eyebrows were raised. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, so so you've got these fifty. So basically, these fifty copies of the book turn up, and then the school just says, "Hey, look, we've got them. We may as well use them." Is that a fair summation? Well, so the teachers were not willing to use the textbooks as they'd already indicated, and once they got the statement, they said they were unwilling to read the statement. Oh, okay. Yep. So they, they wrote up a statement of their own saying that reading that statement would conflict with their professional responsibilities as mm-hmm. uh, science educators, uh, arguably conflict with the Pennsylvania state law, mm-hmm. and basically put their foot down and said they wouldn't do it. The uh, first signatory on this was Bertha Spar, nicknamed Bert, um, mainly because she was closest to retirement and she was pretty much willing to be fired over this. So. Okay. Um, did any of the teachers? Did any teachers get fired? None of the teachers got fired. I'm okay. pleased to say. Instead, instead, the uh, superintendent of the district and or his um, assistant filed into each class, read it out, 
and uh, with the teachers absented themselves for this and refused to answer any questions. Wow, that's... Uh... So basically, the edu the education board is really trying to railroad the staff into pushing intelligent design. Yes, and the staff refused. Well, actually, I should say creationism because it all like I see intelligent design as as an academic form of creationism myself, but yeah, either way in that one. But um, yeah, okay. So you have all these uh, you have all these teachers who are being railroaded into pushing creationism um now how can i say so you have statements you have these books that are turned up you have the the senior management coming in and doing menial work like read like reading a statement now why would the superintendent come in and read the state read these statements well the board had um said this is our policy and oh, this is okay. our procedure for enacting the policy and it's the superintendent's job to make sure that the procedures enacting policies happen. So I never got a sense of how happy he was about it or unhappy, but, mm -hmm. but he apparently construed it to be his job and okay. he did it. Cause I'm sure, you know, he's, he's got this, he's got this request to read out a, you know, read out a particular statement. And it's going, I've got better things to do than this. But then again, maybe he would have been, he would have been, he would have been happy about it. Yeah. Now, uh, so you first. I don't think we know. No, no. Um, now, when does this when does this get back to the parents? Well, the parents are keenly aware of this. Um, there are two two daily papers in New York, both of which were very interested in covering developments exactly as they happened. Uh -huh. uh, so the parents knew all about it, and their legal team was filing the lawsuit. Okay, and I suppose so they they knew something was up and they proactively got a legal team in place. Well, different parents had been talking to different people. Oh, okay. sort, of the, sort of the stereotype, I think, is in the United States is that the, it's the ACLU that does uh, civil liberties work, mm -hmm. which yep. is true to some extent. The, in fact, the legal team consists, consisted of um, the Pennsylvania branch of ACLU. Yep. And... Um, Perhaps I should have said that ACLU stands for American Civil, Civil, Liberties, Civil Union. Liberties Union. Okay. Yep. Um, the another Civil Liberties group called Americans United for Separation of Church and State, mm -hmm. which focuses a little more on church-state separation, as you might yep. have assumed that <laughs> yep. ACLU does, and um, Pepper Hamilton LLP, which uh, is yes, one, so, of the, yeah, so one of the one of the states. Sorry. So Pepper Hamilton LLP, that's one of the state's largest private law firms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing their name in, in, in the background yeah, in the background details. Um, now, I, I might be preempting a uh, later discussion here, but at this stage, do Bonsell and Buckingham know they've broken the law or are they ignorant? Or what do you think is their legal opinion on the matter like well, in, in regards to where they stand with the law? So it's hard to know. They may have been told that what they were doing was legal. Mm -hmm. They may have been told that it was a gray area and this would be a good ch chance for Thomas More Law Center to help show that it was legal. Okay, yep, no, fair enough. Like, um, or, or were they just so hell-bent on uh, pushing in, uh, 
an anti-evolution case that they didn't they didn't care about the law, and they were happy to receive Tom uh, Thomas More's uh, assistance in fighting any legal action. Yeah, I I wouldn't rule rule that out. Okay, um, but it, it's hard to know. I should say that uh, NCSC um, actually put together the plaintiff's legal team be- um, because we, we are sort of the specialty boutique organization that deals with creationism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the parents came to us, and uh, in particular, we got Pepper Hamilton on board, nice. and that made a big that made a big difference because a private law firm has a lot of resources. They do. They that, do. Well, I was, was going to so I was going to ask. So, when did NCSC actually get like? What, what was your first whiff of uh, of rumblings? I think that was probably early in two thousand four when we saw newspaper coverage of the uh, fight over the textbooks. Okay, yep. And we see something like that, and we make a point of asking around and be, be aware of it. And, yep. Yeah. It goes on our radar. We had no idea that it would blow up into the first definitive challenge to the constitutionality of teaching intelligent design in the classrooms. We mm-hmm. actually thought that was going to happen next door in Ohio. Oh, okay. And what, what was happening in Ohio? In Ohio? Well, so th- each state has something called state science standards, mm-hmm. which are um, – documents setting forth what skills and abilities and knowledge students are supposed to acquire uh, throughout their science education. In 2002, uh, there was an attempt to put intelligent design in the uh, standards there, which was fought off, but there was some kind of weaselly compromise language that we feared would be then be abused in the service of getting intelligent design into the classroom. In 2004, uh, this came to pass with some state-approved model lesson plans corresponding to those weaselly bit of the standards. And we thought that we were going to actually have a lawsuit and a big fight in Ohio. Oh, okay. Uh, We didn't, as it happens. Okay, so what happened happened in Ohio Ohio for it to not enter the national national, uh, conversation? Well, two things. One is um, by the time they, the controversy really started about this, Kitzmiller was over. Oh, okay. And that had, and showing that people were trying to smuggle intelligent design into these model lesson plans did a lot of itself to discredit that attempt. The other thing is there had been some shenanigans going on about the lesson plans and uh, certain members of the state board of education there, which did okay. not look which did not look good. So they removed those lesson plans. Fair enough. Now that's a all right. That's a thank 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 you for clarifying that up. Okay, so you guys get involved. Uh, Pepper Hamilton get involved, and I think you're yeah you're right in saying that. Uh, private law firms, especially one as big as Pepper, Pepper Hamilton, you know, just have you know they're they're professional lawyers for a reason, and they can yeah, they're they're, they're good at their job. So how how did how did the case go to trial? Like what what was what was what was the what was the machinations between um, parents coming to you, um, you getting Pepper Hamilton involved, and then actually going to trial? Like what steps are there in between all that? And what happened to actually make it go to trial? Because my, my my understanding is that trial is more for marginal cases, where you know it's basically line line ball decisions, not for something that's obviously right or wrong. 
Well, Thomas More Lawsoner was certainly willing to fight it out. Okay. So, um, so what happened is that the uh, plaintiff's legal team uh, drafts an initial complaint, mm-hmm. and um, Thomas More Law. Ah, so the uh, Dover Area School Board, like most local school boards, um, has a a solicitor, which mm-hmm. doesn't mean quite what it means in. British jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Base, base, they don't employ their own full-time lawyer, but they have a retainer with a lawyer, usually one speci- specializing in education law. Mm-hmm. And um, so it would normally be um, the solicitor who defends the uh, district. Uh, the solicitor declined to do so. Okay. Enter uh, Thomas Moore Law Center. Say, yeah. we'll, we'll defend you. Okay, so so there there are a lot of filings in court, starting with the initial complaint, response to the complaint, and it goes back and forth. Uh, both sides uh, start to assemble, and it's it's clear that this is not going to settle. Yeah, and both, that, that, both... that was more what I was curious about the fact that like I'm sure there's some sort of mediation or attempt at settlement beforehand. Yeah, I don't know offhand whether there was any attempt to settle, and um, oh, okay. And since what was involved here was a constitutional issue, the plaintiffs were arguing that the policy and the reading of the statement pursuant to the policy violated the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, in particular the Establishment Clause, which says, in effect, that uh, the government must remain religiously neutral. Yep, yep. So, you know, you don't really want to reach a settlement or a compromise on violations of fundamental constitutional rights no no so any so then uh, go, go it goes to trial well so it doesn't go to trial yet oh, okay. uh, be, because there there's something called discovery ah oh, yes i forgot about that yes that's a... so basically each side has a responsibility to make the other side familiar with um how they're going to be arguing mm-hmm uh, what their legal theory is, what their fact witnesses are going to say, what their expert witnesses are going to yeah. say. Now, I think it's also at this stage that you can also request uh, documents as well. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, so, And the uh, defendants didn't have a lot of documents requests from the plaintiffs, but the plaintiffs sure had a lot of documents requests from the mm. uh, defendants okay. and, at- and their experts. Okay, and how how easy was it to get? So, what sort of things would you were asked for in, in discovery from your side? Uh, so, the um, plaintiffs were really not asked for that much, except mm-hmm. for things from their expert witnesses. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe I should actually move to expert witnesses because this is kind of interesting, because a lot of the fact witnesses were testifying to things like. Yeah, the board adopted this policy. I went and read the policy. Mm-hmm. I refused to read the policy, things like that. Mm-hmm. But when you get into the meat of the um, the case, is evolution regarded as the scientific consensus? Yep. Is there any scientific credibility to intelligent design? Mm-hmm. Uh, what kinds of things is it appropriate to expose school children to in a science class? Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things that the expert witnesses would be addressing. Like a yet. So NCSC actually put together the um, the, the plaintiffs' expert witnesses, and these were uh, Kevin Padian, who's a paleontologist at the University of California, Berkeley, mm-hmm. 
Kenneth Miller, yep. half, half of Miller and Levine, who's a cell biologist at Brown University. <laughs> yep. Um, Barbara Forrest and Robert Pennock, who are two uh, philosophers, uh, Forrest at Southeastern Louisiana University mm-hmm. and Pennock at um, Michigan State. Uh, Forrest had, just before the trial, um, co-authored a book with the biologist Paul R. Gross, a book-length expose of the intelligent design movement. So he's he's in prime position to counter the intelligent design movement. Yes, indeed. And Barbara Forrest was um, viewed as such a threat that uh, actually at trial, expert witnesses can be challenged as you know not being expert. Of course, yeah. And they they spent about half a day trying to do that to no avail. Well, okay, this is a uh, quite interesting. Um, okay. w- w- uh, what? Two, 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 two more though. Of course, yeah. Keep going. Yep. Okay, okay. Uh, so, well, and Robert Pennock, the other philosopher, had mm-hmm. also written extensively on intelligent design. Yeah. The other, t- the other two witness uh, expert witnesses for the plaintiffs were uh, Brian Alters, then of McGill University, mm-hmm. who is an expert on evolution education. Yep. And John F. Hot a Catholic theologian at Georgetown University who specialized in theology of evolution. I didn't even know such a thing existed, but okay, that's the, the more you know. Yeah. And, I'll, and on, the, on the defendant side? On the defendant side, um, the major expert witnesses were three people associated with the Discovery Institute, the de facto um, institutional home of intelligent design. Mm -hmm. And these were William Dembski, who was a philosopher and mathematician, Mm -hmm. uh, then at, I think possibly he was still at Baylor at the time, uh, Michael Behe, a Mm -hmm. biochemist at Lehigh University, and Stephen C. Meyer, who did not have an academic affiliation, but was uh, at the Discovery Institute. Fair enough. And I think the most, uh, out of those three, who, who do you think is the most uh, notorious? Well, it depends what, notorious for what. Um, yeah. they, they all um, get a lot of promotion from the Discovery Institute. They, they, they do. That's Because uh, um, my understanding was Behe was the lead, uh, was, was the lead witness. Yes, but not necessarily because of his notoriety. So... Uh, there were other expert witnesses uh, on board, but mm-hmm. those th- those are sort of the, th- the three most famous yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what's kind of interesting is um, all of the expert witnesses submitted um, statements, kind of saying what, the, rehearsing who they were and what their qualifications were and what they planned to say, mm-hmm. and. Um, and the opposing party was given an opportunity to ask them about it in person at a procedure called a deposition. Mm-hmm. Now, it turned out that um, the Thomas More Law Center had been squabbling behind the scenes with the Discovery Institute about how to run the trial, what the legal case would be, uh, how to organize it. How to, basically, who was going to be in charge of this? Okay, Discovery, yeah. Discovery Institute apparently held, hey, we're the experts on intelligent design. We should get to kind of 
be in charge of the trial. Thomas yep. More Law Center apparently thought we're lawyers. We should be in charge. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, as a result of this kind of ongoing squabble, um, Meyer pulled out of the case and did not serve as an expert witness. Okay. Dembski, Dembski pulled out of the case and did not serve as an expert witness. Were, were they witnesses anyway, or like did they just relegate themselves to witness, or they just pulled out of the case entirely? They pulled out of the case entirely. Their only role would be as expert witness. They weren't, you know, okay, they yeah. weren't in Dover. They didn't. They didn't know anything about it. Not uh, and some other some other small fry like John Angus Campbell, who is a professor of rhetoric at the University of Memphis, uh, similarly pulled out, which was a little disappointing because I had spent um, you know a week reading stuff by him in preparation oh. for his deposition. Darn it. Um, uh, Behe uh, stayed with him, and okay. that's why that's why Behe was the uh, the kind of lead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Expert witness. So so in, so in short. Um, these people who had the prime opportunity to defend intelligent design didn't. Uh, yes. And obviously they didn't ask me to sit in any of these meetings, but you know, apparently for kind of personality-driven, doesn't play well with others' reasons. Okay, that's... Uh... Bit of a shame, but the, it, it, it's it's become what it's become. Yeah. So there was actually something hilarious on national television uh, about a month into the trial, mm -hmm. where Richard Thompson of the Thomas More Law Center squabbled with um, a representative of the Discovery Institute, someone you probably haven't heard of, named Mark Ryland. No, I can't say I have, but anyway. Yeah. But I guess he was just available for the show. So, so, <laughs> yeah. so during the during the course of the discussion, Ryland claimed that the Discovery Institute, you know, deplored the actions of the school board. It had never set out to have school boards teach intelligent design. Mm, yeah. And Thompson holds up a copy of a book entitled "Intelligent Design in Public School Science Curriculum: A Guidebook." and quotes the passage from it that says, school boards have the authority to permit and even encourage teaching about design theory as an alternative to Darwinian evolution. And this includes the use of textbooks such as, such as of pandas, pandas and, people. and people. And this guidebook had been co-authored by members of the Discovery Institute, including Stephen C. Meyer. Caught red-handed. So uh, Kenneth Miller is mm. also on this panel, and the host turns to him and says, do you have a comment? And he says, do I have to? I'm really <laughs> enjoying this. <laughs> so, Glenn, were you actually there for the trial? I was not. I was um, holding down the fort back in Oakland, California. No, no, fair enough. I just, I just would have liked. To, I, I have seen. What was that document? I know they, they did a reenactment. I think it was uh, the verdict that changed the world or something. Um, judgment Day, intelligent design oh, on what, trial. That's the one. Yes, yeah. so I saw the reenactments, but I um, uh, there was one particular point that stuck out where um, oh, who was it? When Michael, when Professor Behe was on the stand and. That I think they're asking asking him about the evolution of the of the immune system, and I think they put all these like research papers and all these textbooks and all, all this stuff up in front of him, 
And I think they said, like, for a bit of uh, legal theatre, they left these things in front of him and the judge said, oh, excuse me, um, you know, you've left your stuff in front of the witness. And Yeah, that was, uh, that was Nick Motsky's idea. He was the NCSC staffer who was the main consultant to the legal team. He spent oh, okay. more than a year working full-time on the case. Wow. And uh, I've got a photo of that stack. And if you look carefully, you can see uh, that all the books are like checked out of the University of uh, California Berkeley Library because that's where he did his research. Oh, okay. And they found them. They found found their way uh, across the country. That's right. <laughs> Not fair enough. I, I I hope he didn't get any late fines. <laughs> that would that would would have been interesting if um if he did. Um, and so obviously the you know the trial goes on and B he does his best to to prosecute the case and you know back and forth and back and forth, um, but just as uh, Judge John E Jones the third, um, in your opinion how like what did you what what did you expect the verdict to be like yeah, at, at the time. Well, our opinion, if you'll forgive the expression, evolved over time. Um, yep. Jones, we didn't know that much about Jones going into the case. My understanding was he was a Bush appointee. He was a Bush appointee. He had been active in uh, Republican politics in the state before. He was a protege of a former Republican governor, Tom Ridge, mm -hmm. um, and had contemplated a... Um, uh, or run for Congress. Okay. Um, the lawyer from the ACLU of Pennsylvania, Vic Walzak, had encountered him in court before. Uh, Jones had served as the chair of the Pennsylvania State Liquor Commission, which some states do this. Uh, they yes. the, the states run their own liquor stores so they can have more control over them. And Jones had bad the banned the sale of bad to frog beer at these stores because okay. on the label of this beer the titular amphibian is flipping the finger oh no uh, an anthrop an anthropomorphic frog giving a giving a rude symbol oh, oh dear whoa so so you see why the aclu of pennsylvania sprang into action mm -hmm. so um uh so vic walzak had uh encountered jones in a class in a courtroom before and mm -hmm. um felt okay about it he didn't think that jones would resent it but okay. you know we 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 did know that he didn't have much of a science background but um on the other hand he was people seemed to think that he was a fair jurist okay and that and that made us confident because we felt that we had an extremely strong case and that it would take something close to judicial malpractice for us not to win Okay, because my understanding was, um, and this is this is a, a little bit sketchy, was that um, the Discovery Institute were basically crowing that you know they've made they've made a solid case, and you know, and basically that J Judge John Jones was he's one of the boys, you know, that there's no way he'll fight against us. Um, um, yeah, this is basically open and shut. You know, guys, good job. I think the Discovery Institute was cagier than that, um, because in part because they had been talking to the folks at the Thomas More Law Center and perhaps did not have a lot of confidence in their oh, understanding okay. of the case as the Discovery Institute thought it should be okay. run. Okay. There was a kind of um, well-publicized remark made by 
someone who was then the administrator of Dembski's personal blog um, that I think might be behind what you're referring to. Uh, yes, yes, that's uh, that. I, I am I am happy to be corrected, and that may be where yeah where where I got the the association between uh, the Discovery Institute and yeah and and, and this quote, but um. Yeah. And and then if I if I remember correctly, um, it was uh, after the verdict came out. It was I think they were basically saying you know Judge John Jones is is a radical judge trying to enforce, um, yeah, trying to enforce Darwinism on the kids. Yes, well, which they were pretty much foreordained to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, there has been a fair amount of discussion. In the legal circles of the uh, of the trial and of the verdict, mm-hmm. and generally, it's I think it's widely held that the pros- the plaintiffs conducted their side very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard it said that Eric Rothschild's cross examination of Michael B. will be, will be studied in another generation, you know, for generations. Yep. And no, I've, um, I've, re- I've read some of the transcripts, and yeah, I thought he, uh, I, I thought he, I thought he did a good job, but I also thought that Michael B. He handled handled himself well. Yes, well, it it it, it did help. Um, one of the other um, expert witnesses, the philosopher turned sociologist Steve Fuller, um, who's an American by birth, but at the University of Warwick in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, also made a lot of own goals. Oh, okay, yep, yep. Um, so, for example, he was perfectly happy to describe intelligent design as a form of creationism, even though so much of the uh, defense case was supposed to be that it wasn't. So, no, that that is definitely a known goal. Now, uh, before I let you go, Glenn, uh, thank you, thank you for this. That's uh, actually give me a lot more insight in, into the case, and uh, yeah, I'll. Uh, uh, that you've taught me a few things. Uh, I'm going to go through a few questions just on just on general creation, intelligent design topics. And one of the questions has come in from Twitter. Um, I'm going to read. I'm going to read a, a verbatim. Uh, ask him how the first DNA was formed. Make sure he explains how 100 or more base pairs were perfectly arranged under a membrane that could function for self-replication. Genuinely curious. So the, this is a trolling question because you don't expect a, someone to read out a scientific research paper on a podcast. No. Fair enough. And yeah, it's a uh, we're we're not scientists, but you know, I think the uh, I think this is one of the and, and the person who asked that he's uh, very much in the intelligent design camp, and I've had a few debates with him about you know. Um, he has read a few Stephen C. Meyer books on the topic as well, and his his uh, belief is that will hold it. Not even the most famous famous atheists in the world know, and this just seems impossible for it to happen by itself. You know, there must have been an intelligent agent uh, behind the uh, behind the uh, formation of the first uh, DNA molecules. So. You know, this is a council of despair. I don't have the details of the evolution of DNA on hand, but, you know, it is a question that scientists have made progress on and can reasonably expect to make further progress on. Indeed, indeed. Um, Thank you for answering that, Glenn. Um, How do you think the religio-political landscape has changed since KVD? Well, um, intelligent design 
um, had faltered a lot. And we have seen attempts to, sorry, in the immediate wake of Kitzmiller versus Dover, we saw attempts to get intelligence signed in the public schools wither on the vine or be replaced by sneakier tactics, like, for example, allowing teachers to teach the strengths and weaknesses of controversial scientific issues. Okay. And, and there's one particular scientific issue that they're highly, uh, highly focused on. Well, it's very often evolution they have in mind. Sometimes they specify evolution. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they say evolution, uh, climate change, origin of life, human cloning. And sometimes they just don't say. Okay. But, but, but evolution is generally the real target of such legislation. And they've had some successes. Uh, there was a weak version of the bill enacted in Mississippi in 2006, won a strong version in Louisiana in 2008, Tennessee in 2012, and resolutions, non-binding resolutions, mm -hmm. um, in the Indiana Senate and both houses of the uh, Alabama legislature in 2017. It's unclear, though, whether these have any effect, because, again, they're permissive, not directive. So they tell teachers, well, you can do this. But, you know, teachers actually don't spend a lot of time poring over the statute book. So it's, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that'd be a fun way. Well, actually, I was going to, this leads to a hypothetical. What do you think the result would be if KVD went the other way? And my understanding is that KVD seems to rest on both the Lemon Test and Edwards versus Aguilard. Um, what if any of those went the other way? Uh, so it's actually the Lemon Test and the Endorsement Test because these are the, these are the standard Supreme Court uh -huh. um, tests for unconstitutionality of government involvement in religion. Yeah. And um, I think it's probably fair to say that church-state um, jurisprudence in the United States is kind of a confusing mess. Yep. Um, so, um, and certainly there are jurists who are looking to make more sense out of it and some ways might be more favorable and some ways might be less favorable to attempts to get different kinds of creationism in the public school classroom. Nonetheless, um, so there's the judicial doctrine of stare decisis, meaning let the decision stand, yeah. um, meaning you're not supposed to kind of overturn settled law whimsically or capriciously. Mm -hmm. And kind of the fundamental um, cases here uh, had pretty strong majorities. Uh, 1968, um, Epperson v. Arkansas, which struck down the uh, Scopes era bans on teaching evolution, mm -hmm. Passed the Supreme Court on 9 0. Like um, uh, Edwards v. Aguilard, 7 2, with uh, Scalia and Thomas, for you Supreme Court fans uh, dissenting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, no, fair enough. Yeah, I'm just reading through, I've just got, uh, got the conclusion in front of me. Um, yeah, uh, the proper application of both the endorsement and lemon test to the facts of this case makes it abundant, abundantly clear that the board's ID policy violates the establishment clause. Yeah, it's very hard to understand how, strike that, it's hard to see a plausible way that 
the U.S. constitutional law could change in such a way as to make that not compelling. Okay, so basically uh, the lemon test was, how can I say, yeah, what, the fact that it wasn't a line ball decision. I'm sorry, not a what decision? A, a line, so, sorry, line ball means like a close, a close contest. The fact that lem, lemon, the lemon case wasn't a close contest. Yes. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, next question I've got is uh, evolution. Oh, hold on. What's that there? Uh, evolution news versus crev.info. Which one? Which one do you think is worse, and why? So, uh, sorry, this is asking for a comparison between two websites. Yes, uh, don't, uh, have you? Uh, firstly, um, have you heard of Evolution? Uh, which, what is the website? I think evolutionnews.com. Oh, evolutionnews.com. Oh, 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 uh, oh, dear. I. Oh, dot org. Sorry, evolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, um, I'm sorry. I I do know what two websites they're talking about. Yep. One is Evolution News, which used to be called Evolution News and Views, which is That's basically right. the Discovery Institute's blog. The other one, Crev.info, I'm pretty sure is David Coppage's. Yes, David Coppage. Uh, and um, let me just note that when David Coppage was uh, sacked from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, mm -hmm. California. I mean, Basically, because they were for Sick attrition. Yeah, I, no, for attrition. Um, you know, he had old skills. He didn't work well with others. And um, okay, so, uh, I, okay, so, so have, have I got it wrong in suggesting that he he was actually sacked because of his uh, creationist views? Uh, JPL says not, J mm -hmm. and there was a lawsuit about it, and the court did not find that he had been sacked primarily because of his religious views so, so when he, so when he says when he when he stick is that he was uh you know fired from nasa because of trying to teach people the truth that is a wholesale lie on on a few different levels the discovery institute seems very fond of manufactured martyrs really no yes now, now it can be told, and of whom Coppage is one of many. Um, but, but a kind of interesting fact here is that Coppage is basically a hardline young Earth creationist. Yep. He comes, by, he comes by it honestly. So is his father, James Coppage, and yet um, he is in bed with the Discovery Institute. Oh, he is. So, okay. so I. Uh, it's interesting to be asked to ask. It's interesting to be asked which is the worst website, given kind of their their affiliations behind the scenes. So, so in, a, um, in, a, in a way, they're both the Discovery Institute with different licks of paint on them. Not exactly, because Coppage is willing to, on his own time, to promote young Earth creationist views okay. that the Discovery Institute wants to be studiedly neutral about. It's a problem for the Discovery Institute because oh. if they if they endorse young Earth creationist views, they'll look just like young Earth creationists and mm -hmm. equally dotty but they can't alienate those people either because they're the foot soldiers of the anti-evolutionist movement in well, general that 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 is actually yeah that's actually a good way of looking at it in in that um yeah the fact that you, like you have uh like the whole uh the, the whole group of anti-evolutionists of which the discovery institute are, are part of and if you alienate one side then you've you've you painted you painted yourself into a corner with regards to trying to get 
popularity, funding, publicity, um, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, very much so. The Discovery Institute doesn't necessarily want or need to be friends with other creationist organizations. Mm. They're actually the competition. But they do need to appear friendly to creationists of all stripes. Uh, Paul Nelson, who's a, a fellow at the Discovery Institute, has been fairly explicit about this and describes intelligent design as a big tent. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to which the answer is, so that's where the clowns are. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a funny one. I like that one. Um, what do you say to those who say judges aren't qualified to declare what is and what isn't science? Because I've, no I, I, well, so I've brought up a KVD a number of times in in showing that, you know, ID slash creationism isn't science. And the usual response from the creationist slash intelligent design proponents is that, well, judges aren't qualified to declare what is and what isn't science. Your, your take on that, Glenn? So judges, judges are not qualified to decide what is and what isn't science. Uh-huh. What they are qualified to do is to adjudicate disputes that are brought to them consistently with the testimony that's brought to them and in the law. And using their legal expertise. And to... using their, their legal expertise, their knowledge of the law, their knowledge of previous cases, and which, of course, can be supplemented by the briefs of the, um, of the parties involved because the judge doesn't have to look up every relevant case himself. The parties have a responsibility to bring up yeah. the relevant cases and to say... Make, to make the argument for yeah, okay. him. That's why we call them judges. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, so in Kitzmiller versus Dover, uh, Judge Jones heard several people who were qualified uh, for the purpose of the trial as expert witnesses mm-hmm. discussing... Um, the nature of science, the limits of science, the definition of science, this sort of thing. And uh, he made a judgment about whose testimony was more credible. Yep. And that's what we pay him for. Um, So if you disagree with what he said, well, his definition, the definition of science articulated in the decision Mm -hmm. doesn't have any legal force. It, It, except for situations that relevantly resemble um, the, the situation that, yeah. that was being adjudicated. Indeed, so indeed. judges make this kind of decision all the time um, on all kinds of technical things of which they themselves have no personal knowledge or expertise. Yep. Like, let, let, let's say there's like a planning decision for a building or if there's a, you know, like a, you know, like, like a, a, a faulty speed gun that's uh, trapped too many drivers you know, that's pinged for speeding. You know, yeah. the, judge, the judge decides those cases as well, but you don't invalidate the judgment because the judge isn't a radar technician or, yeah. or an engineer or, a, or whatever. So um, if someone disagrees with the definition of science in the Kitzmiller versus decision, that's fine. But it doesn't make the decision go away or it doesn't make it any less legally binding. Mm. And if they think that they can make a really, really good case for a definition of science that would do the creationist cause some good, then, you know, if they find a fact pattern and a case where they can qualify as an expert witness, um, go okay. For it. Go for it. Yeah. I won't um, get in their way. 
Is that fair? Uh, what What do you say to religious fundamentalists who say that people like NCSE or blogs like the Panda's Thumb or whoever, who say that you're just angry atheists who want to destroy people's faith? Well, uh, we're not. So, I mean, it's hard, hard to know what to make of such an accusation. Bear in mind that a number of the expert witnesses in Kitzmiller versus Dover for the uh, plaintiffs mm-hmm. were people of faith. Yes. Ken, Mil- Ken Miller is a practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Hott is a Catholic theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Pennock, I believe, is a Quaker. Yep. Good, good points. Because uh, I think and, uh, I think Michael Behe himself is Catholic as well. Michael Behe is a Catholic, and you know, the uh, the Church does not take a stand on this. Um, and if we move beyond Kitzmiller versus Dover, one of the major voices for um, accommodating faith and science in the U.S. is the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Fra- Francis, Dr. Francis Collins. Collins. Yes, exactly. and, I, and I've quoted him and Biologos uh, quite, quite a few times. So um, if everyone who wants evolution taught properly is supposed to be atheist. bent on some atheist plot, uh, they've got a whole lot of theists involved for some reason. Mm. <laughs> no, exactly. But then um, I've, I've brought that up to various creationists and the number one response I get is, oh, evolution is just their opinion. Well, you know, that's just their opinion, man. But actually, <laughs> but actually it's a fact. It is. <laughs> no, it's just a theory, Glenn. It's just a theory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, intelligent design. Like, I'm going to come out and say that I, th- if there was something that would sway me back to um, at least deism and maybe theism, if the if the, you know, if the, if the case is strong enough, would be intelligent design. Um, now, I'm not saying that I, I'm falling for it, but I'm saying like if if intelligent design could actually prove a case, then it may lead me away from strictly athe- uh, from a strictly atheist uh, belief system. Um, what what do you what do you think of, of about the intelligent design uh, case in general, both the strengths and the weaknesses? Um, let's start with the weaknesses because that's a little easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, one thing is that intelligent design, as it's usually defined by the Discovery Institute, uh, isn't supposed to take you to theism. It's supposed to establish a designer, mm-hmm. but it's supposed to be unable. So on science, the, the argument is supposed to be: look, the science can establish that certain structures and systems in the biological world are the product of intelligent design. Mm -hmm. However, and don't ask me how they know this because it's utterly unclear, the scientific data is incapable of answering the question of the nature of the designer, whether it's an imminent natural designer like aliens Mm -hmm. or time traveling cell biologists from the far future, (laughs) as Michael Behe himself has said it might be in print, or, of course, the god of uh, Abraham. Abraham. Excuse me. And 19, 19 times out of 10, it's the, the god of the Bible. An amazing coincidence, yes. Yeah, I know, I know. Strange, strange uh, that. When the uh, Raelian uh, group, which is a, as we say, new religion involving um, uh, basically worship of extraterrestrials, yeah, yeah. 
um, publicly endorsed the teaching intelligent design in a press release some years ago. The Discovery Institute did not rush to their arms. No, what a what a, what a surprise! I thought they'd um, yeah. be on the same side, but no, that's a. Uh... Interesting. Um, but do you think do you think uh, there is any strength to the intelligent design uh, case, and especially as the Discovery Institute put it, puts it? No intellectual strength. Okay. It it has sort of the political strength in that the studied vagueness about the nature of the designer, and moreover such interesting details as the timing or an extent of its activity. Mm-hmm. Um, establishes, again, Paul Nelson's word, this big tent under which anti-evolutionists of all stripes are presumably welcome to shelter. The idea is to be able to make a unified political movement at undermining the teaching of evolution in the public schools. And this this is one thing that struck me a lot, was I, I read through the Wedge document, and it's almost like they're blaming Charles Darwin himself for you know all of society's evils. I was thinking, okay, that's uh, that's that one. That's not true. But you know, if you if you, if you're that hell bent on trying to destroy Darwinism, then like you know, like Darwin isn't evolution, and evolution isn't Darwin. You know, guys, you know, you you're railing against a guy who, you know, did something important 150 years ago. I, I don't quite get why he's still still on his case. Well, I think I think they're aware of that, and I think they've decided to go with it. Anyhow, I think yeah. the idea is by calling it Darwinism, you make it seem like the dismissible, idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic product of a single person. And of yeah. course, you can also pair it with Freudianism and Marxism. Yeah, well, um, I, I, I bring this case up uh, to creationists is that, um, like for example, um, there's numerous people who have who have said to me that uh, teaching children evolution causes them to get depression and, and and other mental health problems, and I've come come back with with a counter that um, teaching children calculus uh, in classrooms you know, like calculus can be really difficult, and that that difficulty leads to stress, which then leads to leads to the depression. But for some reason, we don't accuse Isaac Newton of you know, causing children mental harm. We don't accuse teachers of being neo-Newtonian pawns or anything and, like that. And, of course, challenging them to, you know, show some data in support of this rather surprising assertion is also in, in Oh, oh actually, 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 I do have some... I do have some data. Um, I know a particular creationist uh, in Melbourne, Australia... Who is uh, last I spoke to him, he was in discussions with uh, Creation Ministries International. Um, his whole uh, his, his thing is that he wants to sue the Victorian State Education Department uh, to have them to have them remove evolution from the science curriculum. And one of his uh, big data points, was that apparently he did a survey of uh, senior high school students uh, before and after a class about evolution. And he claims that uh, after the class, um, there were more feelings of despondency and loneliness after teaching the children a class on evolution. That's interesting. I'd be interested to know whether this could 
survive peer review at a suitable journal? I have my doubts as well, but um, apparently he does have uh, a letter from... Now, I think it was a university... There's a guy at the University of Liverpool, Dr. Stuart... I think it's Dr. Stuart Rawson, who's a biomechanics professor, um, who wrote a letter... Um, to this guy saying you've got your facts straight, you know, feel free to go ahead with any any uh, legal, um, yeah, any any legal uh, moves you want, and I'll th- this letter will serve as a recommendation that you've got your facts straight. Hmm. I thought that's uh, that's that's interesting. It is. I don't know if I'd really want my social science data evaluated by a mechanical engineer, but uh, that's uh, that's that's what he's going for. But no, he um. But this is the this is the thing, yeah. That um, for some reason, Darwin himself is seen as like the angry atheist, as seen as the uh, you know, like Hitler got his inspiration from Darwin, and therefore Darwin is racist, and yeah, all, all well, this stuff. We do see a lot of personal attacks on Darwin, and occasionally other evolutionary biologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of Darwin, who um, was extraordinarily attentive. Uh, to not offending his wife's sincere religious beliefs, it's particularly inappropriate. Mm, it is. It is indeed. And given that, given that on the Beagle, he was basically the creationist on the Beagle, is the way I read it. Yeah. Well, I mean, clear, clearly his views developed over time, but mm, um, they they evolved. <laughs> as I were. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, what are some other common anti-evolution arguments that you come across, and that you have some brief time to quickly go over? Well, we sometimes talk at NCSC of the three pillars of evolution, and one of them is the one we've been discussing, three pillars of creationism, one of which is the one we've been discussing, that evolution is a threat to morality, religion, society, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, another, another one is that it's only fair to... Teach a controversy. Teach the controversy, teach creation, you know, teach the majority view. That used to be the uh, version when the majority view was creationism. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, there's been an interesting development in this pillar uh, because if you go back to, say, the Scopes era, the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, when William Jennings Bryan was giving this kind of argument, he'd say, look, uh, he who uh, pays the piper calls the tune. Uh, these are public schools. The majority of the public is creationist and wants creationism taught. Uh, he actually didn't use the term creationist because it doesn't come into common currency until a bit later. No. Um, but we don't want the majority doesn't want evolution taught, so we won't, let's not teach evolution. Um, but I, I, find, I find I find it interesting that that's coming from a guy who said, if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I, I would believe it. <laughs> but the thing is that this kind of appeal to majoritarianism is now an appeal to minoritarianism. You'll see Discovery Institute and other creationist organizations saying, you know, can't we have some intelligent design taught as a kind of affirmative action for creationists? This is something that uh, Steve Fuller said during the Kitzmiller trial. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and, and, the th- and the third pillar? Well, uh, so the third pillar is that evolution is a theory in crisis, tottering on the verge of being discarded. Really? I've, I've been playing, though, with a kind of distinguishing two versions of this, so I'm now up to four pillars, which is probably more stable. Okay. Um, uh, so one is um, these scientists disagree with evolution. 
Okay, so how an, many? An, an appeal to authority. And pretty much all the creationist organizations, including Interest in Genesis and the Discovery Institute, have these lists of scientists who accept creation. Um, uh, who, are, you, are you referring to the uh, scientific descent from Darwinism? That's the Discovery Institute's version. Ah, uh, yep. Um, or the Interest in Genesis has a list of just scientists who are creationists. And, okay. and cool. it's easy to, you can find lots of versions of these. Yep. Um, they're all really short. Uh, the well, actually, actually, no, I think the, the Discovery Institute's one is up to like a 800 or so. Yeah, uh, roughly a thousand, something like that. Yeah, but how many of them are named Steve? Oh, geez, I wonder how many of them are named Steve. You could tell me a bit more about that, Glenn. Well, okay. Uh, so some years ago, uh, the National Center for Science Education um, had had about enough of these lists of scientists who don't accept evolution or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so if we thought, well, should we have a list of scientists who accept evolution? No, that would be crazy. It would be mm. a very long, long, boring list. Indeed. Okay, how about a list of scientists who accept evolution Name Steve. And why Why the name Steve in particular? Uh, because in honor of the late paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, who had died mm -hmm. not too long before. No, good, good choice. So we, uh, so, you know, we're, we're liberals. We uh, mm -hmm. said Steve is okay. Stephen with a V is okay. Stephen with a PH is okay. Stephanie is okay. Esteban's okay. Esteban, Etienne, Stephane is okay. Uh, probably, um, uh, Tapani. That's finished. Yep. 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 Um, okay. So, so as a stunt, we, you know, quietly solicited, we wanted to get a hundred. Mm -hmm. We had 220 by the time we were ready to roll out the press release because they kept on going wow. at the moment. It, it's about 1,450 odd. And the question, the question is, how many of those Steves have professional qualifications in 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 a bio, biological field? Excellent question. Uh, pretty much all of them have PhDs in some kind of scientific field or other. Um, about, as, as opposed to the Discovery Institute's list of let's say eight hundred of people from general fields in science. Yeah. Well, we have general fields of science too, so yeah, it's, course, it's kind of comparable there. But, but about. I believe 40-45% of ours are directly in a field with relevance to evolution, so mm -hmm. biology, physical anthropology, th things like this. I mean, you know, one can always quarrel about a particular oh, indeed, case, indeed, indeed. But, but the trend, which is a lot more than Discovery Institutes. In the and, United States... Also, I was going to say one more thing I've noticed about the Discover the Discovery Institute's list is that most of the people tend to be evangelicals on that list as well. Um, I haven't actually tried to go through and classify uh, there, there, there was a there was a newspaper article I read that actually went through the went through the list and found the yeah found out that I think at least two thirds of the signatories to that list were had had publicly declared themselves to be uh, Protestant evangelicals. Okay, interesting. Okay, I can't can't vouch for that myself. No, that's um, that's. Uh, they've also had a couple of defections from their list, people who have decided that the list was being misused or not 
used in a way that they thought it would be used and have had their names removed. Mm -hmm. uh, we have mm -hmm. had we have had no defectors. And the other and the other thing is that in the United States, approximately one percent of the population has a qualifying first name. So if we have 1456 steves mm -hmm. that represents that corresponds to at least 145600 scientists who uh, accept the evolution and are willing to say so mm -hmm. that's in interesting numbers interesting and, numbers and we had a lot of fun with it too so <laughs> yes win-win that 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 is what i got from reading the ncse the ncse website G great was that um now before I let you go before I let you go it has been about an hour and a half so um <laughs> I've d definitely had a lot of fun listening to your 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 take on things so Glenn probably what what's the best way to counter some of these anti-evolution arguments that that you find online or on Twitter or you know wherever well it's hard to know because there's such a diversity of argument and such a diversity of level of sophistication mm -hmm. a lot of um creationists, especially ones you might encounter in a discussion board online, mm -hmm. um, will actually not know that much either about evolution or creationism or anything relevant that anything that might be relevant to discussing them. Except, except what their pastor has let them know about it. Or what, or what they've ascertained from a hasty Google. Actually, actually, I've just found I just found the the question I wanted to I wanted to ask you. Sorry, 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 Glenn. Um, as someone who walked away from the Christian faith only a handful of years ago, there was lots that I was sheltered from, and I didn't even know about KVD until after I left the faith. Why do you think that is? Well, for one thing, why should you be paying attention to U.S. legal cases? I couldn't name a single Australian legal case if I tried. Well, given given that America basically runs the world, and whatever happens in America usually finds its way to um, to Australia, but in in this fundamentalist charismatic church I was in, um, the pastor had subscri had subscriptions to uh, Charisma magazine and Christianity Today. So whenever we went to his place, there were you know there was always something you know a few a few months behind the current trends, but you know we could read up on the latest. In Christian in Christian thought, I but, feel for some, pretty... but for some reason, um, in no church that I was in um, was KVD ever mentioned, and I find well, that interesting. It is interesting. Christianity Today, I'm pretty sure, had some coverage of uh, Gitzmiller versus Dover. Okay. Um, it had in previous years been somewhat sympathetic to the movement and gave its proponents some attention and some uh, space. Uh, since then, I think it's kind of moved away from that and has been more sympathetic to attempts such as those of BioLogos to make room for evolution within their, yep. their evangelical Christianity. As for why it wasn't mentioned in your churches, I... I really can't say. I mean, it might be something nefarious, like not wanting to expose you to the defeats of their heroes, but it also might be that they're big, bigger or other fish to fry. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good point. Like, there, there is part of me that thinks that, um, you know, we were sheltered from uh, particular views. And in, uh, I think, the more fundamental your religion is, um, the, the more of that information control happens. 
I mean, it may be a combination of both of these factors. No, no, fair enough. That's so. a, a good point. Anyway, Glenn, um, before I let you go, um, where can I find more about NCSE? Well, on our website, ncse.ngo. Excellent. Fair enough. Well, Glenn, thank you for giving me the last hour and a half of your time. I greatly appreciate it. Um, look after yourself, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Okay. Uh, let me know when you've posted it, please. Indeed, shall do. Don't worry about that. Okay. Thank you, Glenn. Okay, thank you. Have a great day. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Have a great day. Have a great week. See you next time.